She said, there's no such thing as the economy. We just have groups of people who get together and trade to improve our well-being. Economy is, is a category that we essentially made up. Welcome to Economics for Emancipation, a podcast about how we can move towards justice by transforming our relationships to each other, to our environment, and to the systems and structures that make our world go round. Each episode in this series features two guests in conversation with each other about the daily struggles, strategic considerations, and huge opportunities that come with the work of building a better world for all of us, with justice as our North Star. I am your host, Amethyst Carey, and I'm here to learn and listen with you. I'll be sharing context, definitions, and some of my reflections on the key themes raised by our brilliant guests. Themes like shared governance and economic democracy. And if you don't know what these terms mean, you're in the right place. We're here to figure them out together. Here's a few ways you can engage with us while listening. If you like what you hear in this episode, please rate us five stars on whatever platform you're using to listen and leave a review. Let us know what you think on Instagram and Twitter by using the tag, hashtag E4EPod, and that is four like the number. If social media isn't for you, or if you're just tired of it like me, you can share your thoughts by sending an email to podcast at economicdemocracy.us. And as always, all of this information and details about today's featured interviewees can be found in our show notes. Okay, let's get into it. In this episode, we are joined by Kalia Kuno and Penn Lo, two people deeply involved in building more just and sustainable economies. Kalia Kuno is co-director of Cooperation Jackson, a network of cooperatives and worker-owned enterprises meeting community needs through sustainable development in Jackson, Mississippi. With their focus on democracy and self-sufficiency, Cooperation Jackson is super inspiring, especially for Black folks like myself, who are passionate about building power and creating alternatives to relying on the government or charity for what we need. You'll hear a lot more about Cooperation Jackson in the episode, and you can find their website and social media accounts in our show notes. Penn Lo is a senior lecturer at Tufts University, where he directs the Master's in Public Policy program in the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning. From 1999 to 2009, he served as the Director of Alternatives for Community and Environment, ACE, an environmental justice group organizing youth and resident-led campaigns for better public transit and air quality in the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. He also serves as a trustee of the Himes Foundation and a board member of the Center for Economic Democracy. In this conversation, Penn and Kali share how reimagining our relationships can help us to free ourselves and each other to build new worlds that we know are possible and in different ways are already here. Kali of Cooperation Jackson kicks us off with his answer to the question, what is the economy? You know, economy is one of those terms that, that particularly in our country, in our context, everybody uses, but nobody really defines. So economy means almost everything and nothing at, at the same time. That said, you know, I'm very much schooled uh, and raised in a particular tradition around political economy, uh, really growing from uh, Marxian kind of radical 
analysis, which I believe is is at base uh, correct, uh, not without its limitations, uh, not without its challenges, not without its blind spots. But you know, and by that means, like all the the economy is all of the quote unquote productive and reproductive activity that occurs uh, in a society um, to provide itself with the goods and services that it needs. Like that is the economy uh, within that kind of framework and, and embedded within that, uh, why we talk political economy, right? Is what are the relationships that define how that work is done, how the product is, is owned and distributed, um, which I think is very essential uh, to understand the types of imbalance that exists within economies, certain types of economies, particularly those that we have known historically. Yeah, I, I really welcomed this question because I have been thinking about this a lot. My, my starting place is, I would say, probably similar to you, kind of steeped in a Marxist political economic kind of structural approach to looking at, at economy. And... And I think more in recent years, I'm drawing a lot out of this idea that everything's a social construction. And, you know, what I found really interesting in, a, in an article that The Globe printed um, towards the beginning of the, the, the pandemic, mm-hmm. it was an article kind of talking about, is there a real trade-off between health and the economy? And they quoted this woman who, who was a University of Michigan co- economist, Betsy Stevenson, who was an Obama administration advisor. And what she said just really spoke to me and and rung true with a lot of the stuff that I've been kind of being informed by. She said, there's no such thing as the economy. We just have groups of people who get together and trade to improve our well-being. (laughs) And what I loved about that quote was just to say that economy is, is a category that we essentially made up, right? That there's nothing that says economy is something that exists outside of the people who do it, right? And it's a concept that we've uh, used and it's been, I would say, misused probably in a lot of ways or used in in ways that have um, been purposeful, right, to exert power and domination over people and over the planet. Um, I'm also heavily informed now by the the diverse economies perspective. And this is something that the the writing duo, the J.K. Gibson-Graham, Julie Graham, who was here at UMass Amherst, and Catherine Gibson, who's in Australia, they were talking a lot about just how even those of us who are anti-capitalists, who are have Marxist critique of capitalism, right, can sometimes conceptualize capitalism as such a dominating kind of unitary system that we're missing a big part of what actually goes on. Um, that we actually have many different types of economies that are, you know, existing in the world that we all participate in, but because of this capitalocentrism, you know, that equates economy with a certain form of capitalism, that we just don't see them. They get invisibilized. Mm. Um, and so one of the exercises we often do with folks, and I do this both, you know, in, with community groups, um, but also uh, in, in some of the, with my students and graduate students and such, um, but we, you know, we'll ask folks, you know, when you listen to the news and they're talking about economy, what are the things they're talking about? Right. right. And, you know, and this is where 
people give you the, the typical answers. They're talking about jobs. They're talking about the stock market, talking about money, unemployment, you know, taxes, <laughs> things like that. Um, and then we tell people, well, you know, what if we defined economy as all the ways that we meet our material needs and care for each other? Right. And then we say, you know, think about that definition. Think about the last 24 hours that you've lived. In what ways have you participated in economy? Right. And then that's when we start to get a much wider range of answers. You know, people are saying, well, I cooked for my family. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a nice conversation, you know, with my sister. Um, I babysat for my niece. Um, you know, it, and you just start getting all these other ways that the ways that people live are actually meeting their material needs and caring for each other. So um, what I like about this definition is it just, it just breaks it down into you know, the things that we actually have to do to live. And of course, it, it includes all the, the, the things that people call capitalism, but uh, it has a lot more than that. And it regrounds stuff and makes it so that we're a part of that story. And it's not about something that's beyond us, right? And it's about the things that we do in our lives that, that actually just give our lives meaning. You know, it's not about trying to have a job so that you can then have a life, you know. Um, it, is, it is life. I love the expansiveness of how Penn and Kali talk about the economy. For many of us who grew up associating economy with suits and finance or economy as the place where capitalist extraction happens, the reminder that the economy is as much of a social construct as race or gender is empowering once you get over the initial shock. To me at least, the recognition that I'm already shaping the economy regularly in my home, in my co-op, in my care relationships, it makes the work of uplifting and strengthening solidarity economies feel less daunting. Listeners, let me know what you think. I teach in a department of public policy, and we often have students who mistakenly believe that to be governing means that you have to control government. Mm-hmm. And you have to write the public policies and the legislation, you know, and, and we always say, yeah, it involves those things, but it definitely is not the end of the story because, you know, even if you have a, a fairly top down system, it still takes the people who are governed, right, to either comply, give some type of tacit consent or resist you know, which often happens, you know, so it's not like you can just, there's, there's not that absolute power top down that can be established without struggle. And, but I'm, I'm definitely inspired by and have kind of come up through different work where the idea of kind of community self-determination, you know, community control, you know, are, are big aspirations and things that, you know, that, that people have been striving for. I think it's a, you know, it's an aspiration that, that's deeply democratic, um, although it doesn't always have to be, um, you know, so I think the, the formal layer of government and public policies is still important, but, but it's not the whole story. So, um, yeah, what, what does governance mean to you? How is it different from government? I think this is becoming an increasingly tricky piece 
you know, I think like the act of governance is how we make decisions uh, about our affairs. And it's one of those things that uh, in a similar vein, you know, like we're, we've, we've been kind of schooled and socialized to think of that in very narrow ways. And that is something that's, that is particularly embedded in, in like structures and institutions that, that are above us in some way or abstract from us in some ways, as opposed to the very concrete day-to-day things that we are all involved in, in one way or another, whether we're living by ourselves or living in some type of collective or family unit. Um, if you just start there, the decisions around how your house is arranged, <laughs> you know, uh, how are your chores going to, to get managed? Like these are all fundamental questions of governance. Uh, how much agency and autonomy do the kids have, for instance, you know, um, and, and what, to what degree um, is the heavy hand of, of the knowledge of the parents, you know, do, to what degree are, are we providing structure as opposed to providing imposition? And then where, are the, where is their agency to impact or, or, or negotiate things? And anybody, know, anybody who has kids knows that um, it's a constant battle of wills. <laughs> you know, and there's a day-to-day negotiation uh, about food, uh, about bedtime, about clothes, about uh, entertainment. You know, like all of these different things uh, are constantly kind of being negotiated as well they should, I would argue, as well they should. But I'm drawing up these examples to say that we are all involved in different types of questions of, of governance. And I think that the piece is using that example to say, how can we take those set of practices that we are already embed in and infuse them in all of the other kind of social activities and relations that we are? And have that those as points of negotiation. So if I can negotiate, you know, uh, with my neighbor, if I can negotiate with my partner, I should be able to have these same type of democratic negotiations at every point uh, of my engagement with the broader society and all the forces within it, all the people within it. Um, and that is, to me, is like the, what what I would say is the essence of governance. You know, it's the, the phrase made popular by C.L.L. James that every cook can govern, you know, and that these are things that in, in reality we all do. How we do them, I think, becomes in question because, like, are you doing them uh, again in kind of a hierarchical way or are these things that are being democratically administered? You know, and, and one of the things to, to kind of take that to the broader level of kind of uh, society, you know, there's a phrase I first learned from the Venezuelan uprising in, in was 1989, 1990, uh, when there was just a, a beautiful phrase uh, was that, you know, we don't want to be the government, we want to govern. And it was, that was one of those things that kind of taught me this kind of clear distinction between power over and power with, right? And I think governance ultimately is, is a question of power with, and sharing and uh, in, in brought the most democratic and participatory ways that, that we can elicit given, you know, the limitations of time and, and space that we all have, in, in my view, to be 
subjective in the old terms. <laughs> well, I'm totally with you on, on, on that view of governance. Um, you know, for me, governance was just how we make collective decisions or how we live with each other on this planet, right? And, and I agree it's at all levels. And because we are social creatures, there's no way we can exist as lone individuals, then that means we necessarily have to be interacting with each other in order to live. Yeah, so how would you define or explain economic democracy? You know, it's interesting. In, in, in our um, context, I will say here in Jackson, we've been very explicitly using this term for about 15 years now. And for us, what that meant was, um, you know, th there is a big uh, libertarian notion about freedoms, right? Mm -hmm. And and uh, democracy and, and individual agency. And so we tried to pose an argument and still do. Um, how can you be against democracy, right? Like if your whole platform, your whole, uh, iteration searching of rights is, is based upon uh, this very kind of individual notion of um, liberty, freedom, and democracy. So for us, we were trying to flip certain things uh, on its head uh, to say that the places where we spend most of us, probably half of our adult lives, are in institutions which are utterly undemocratic. It's, and that is most of our uh, workplaces, whereas we don't determine, the vast majority of workers don't determine either the wages uh, or the working conditions uh, or the, the, the governance of the operation. Like we're just kind of cut out, you know, and, and uh, those who own whatever company that most of us work for, the institutions, you know, they say this is the wage scale, these are the working conditions and, and hours. Um, and these are your, you know, like fundamental rights, you know, what you can wear and what time you can take a break and eat and, you know, do the things you need to do to uh, survive and function. And, and we found the raising of this in a particular tool as a, as a challenge to say, why shouldn't we have some say, basic individual say, that we mediate with each other? Uh, to determine how we're going to spend our time together. One of the things I think we kind of learned was where we were being stuck in a in a conversation about possession and dispossession, with a with a with the old understanding of kind of socialism. So it meant taking away someone's house or taking away someone's property. And I think the way the economic democracy framework is like, no, I'm not trying to take away anything. I'm trying to figure out how to share with you the things that I have to share. Like, you know, we all breathe the same air, drink the same water. We're all around each other. I want it to be clean. Don't you want it to be clean? So it opens up a different conversation that, that rather than me trying to dispossess you or something of that of that nature, but really determining how do we want to do this together? Because it's not like, you know, I may be able to ignore you from time to time or not be in your neighborhood or in your presence, but that doesn't, mean that we still don't have a relationship. We, we really do. So how do we want that relationship to go? Um, I think these are some of the, the things that we are learning in terms of how do we use 
economic democracy, I would say, is really as a as a as a tool to kind of break down some of the ideological barriers uh, uh, and points of contention that exist within our society, which we know are very, very, very deep. Yeah, I'm nodding my head a lot just because um, I feel like you've very articulately <laughs> painted, you know, a picture of like why why I think we gravitated toward this term too. And, you know, I think for me, it's less important how to define it exactly than it is an invitation to a conversation. Right. And that yeah. you can have a different kind of conversation than one that's stuck in a particular mode, you know, that I think, yeah, that kind of capitalism versus communism mode or socialism, right, is just gotten a little bit old and not useful. Right. in terms of um, how people line up on that and, and what gets communicated. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm right there with you on, on kind of it being a tool. Um, yeah, I guess I, I, I also find that connecting these two things that are about, you know, democracy usually applied to a political sphere, right, and of course economy being its own sphere, you know, I think it rejoins spheres that, that really were never separate other than perhaps in our own constructions, in our own mind, right? That, um, that our economic lives, that what we do to govern, it's all part of one thing, right, in terms of how we live. And, and to me, you know, just these tendencies we have, and, and when I say we, like us in, you know, kind of the Western <laughs> modern world, you know, intellectually speaking, like we separate things out, right? We, we, we fragment things, try to reduce things, you know, to understand the parts, but, you know, not always necessarily having an understanding of the whole. And I think splitting our worlds up into like the political, the social, the environmental, the economic, right? These are all, I think, ways that we do that. Sometimes it's useful to do that, but I think other times it, it really creates separations that are part of the root of the problems, right? That, you know, that if you, if you say economy is its own separate sphere with its own different ethics, its own different rules, right, then you can do all kinds of horrible things to people, <laughs> you know, exploit them. You can do all kinds of horrible things to, to our planet. And, and it's okay because, you know, the logic in that world is, you know, at least in, in capitalist terms, is as long as you're growing the pie. Of, of wealth, you know, right. yeah, and then and then then you fight over how you distribute that or redistribute that, right? Yeah, so I, this idea that you can apply democracy into that world, doing that is a pretty radical thing, um, considering how capitalist economics, right, has put itself together. So, yeah, the other thing to, that that I find really fascinating about thinking it through how these spheres aren't separate is just you know this idea that the government, the state. It's an intertwined system. You know, there is no economy without government protecting property rights, right? Policing people, <laughs> you know, enforcing contracts. Similarly, like, you know, we split apart environment, but, you know, there could never be an economy without the earth and the resources we use, right, to support that. And then finally, you know, this idea that economy can exist without people seems really kind of strange, right? But but it's it's out there and we talk about economy as if it was its own machine. Right? And and how's it doing today, right? And uh what are these indicators the we've economy. got? The well, exactly, all. the economy. Yeah, the economy. <laughs> 
Yeah. So it's, it's some of these ways of thinking, I feel like, you know, we've got to start breaking down and, and using terms like economic democracy, I think, you know, is, is a purposeful way to get people to start to stitch some of this stuff back together. It doesn't necessarily get us all the way there, but it starts the conversation. And I think for us, it, it, you know, it also gets people excited about the projects we can do, whether it's the co-ops or the land trust or other, you know, actual entities that we can uh, try to practice, you know, some of this democracy and, you know, producing things so that people can live well. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. All the ways we can break down the artificial divisions and the way we live and the way we think that aren't serving us. We love to get rid of unnecessary binaries over here. <laughs> and I'm curious, for folks hearing about economic democracy for the first time, does this resonate with you? Are you already meeting your daily needs in more relational ways? And do you have other frameworks that help you to break down some of the divisions held up by white supremacy and capitalism? Please share your thoughts with us at podcast at economicdemocracy.us. One thing that Penn mentioned that I want to loop back around on is land trusts. So for folks who are unfamiliar or are still just trying to figure out and understand what this term is referring to, community land trusts are a form of collective land ownership. They usually happen through a democratically governed community nonprofit. Community land trusts, or CLTs for short, are used for environmental conservation and to preserve affordable housing, among lots of other uses. They're a useful model because they allow people to take land out of the speculative market in order to protect the land from commercial development and rising prices. Where I live, there's a growing network called the Greater Boston Community Land Trust Network, which supports current and emerging community land trusts for resident-led planning and long-term collective control of land. I actually got the chance to work for one member of the network, Dudley Neighbors, Inc., which was established in 1988 during a period of devastating disinvestment in the Dudley neighborhood of Roxbury and parts of Dorchester. Over the last 30 years, this land trust has become a highly respected example of an urban community land trust, owning more than 30 acres of land with over 200 units of affordable housing, an urban farm, a greenhouse, and multiple commercial buildings and parks. Dudley Neighbors, Inc. and the other members of the Greater Boston Community Land Trust Network are a great reminder that these ideas that we're discussing are real. They're real, they exist. They aren't just pie-in-the-sky hopes, but actual models that we can build in our own communities. To that point, if you're interested in learning more about these CLTs and other community projects across Massachusetts, I highly recommend that you check out Solidarity Rising, a report that Penn worked on, which you can find linked in our show notes. In the last segment of this episode, Kali talks about his work with Cooperation Jackson and what he calls the generational project of self-determination. He highlights how our response to the current crises, from COVID to the racial justice uprisings, our opportunities to prepare for a future in which we have the infrastructure and experience to meet our own and our community's needs when the government won't. Our project is rooted in a, in a long-term kind of goal and vision of accomplishing, you know, uh, uh, self-determination or, or a type of self-determination for Black people, uh, but not exclusively in, in that sense, but definitely 
uh, dealing with our kind of historic issues within this society. Um, lack of power, lack of resources, you know, dehumanization and, and taking, you know, through our own agency and figuring out how do we correct that? Where are the, where are the best things that we can do uh, on our own to build the kind of the power and capacity uh, to change that and not having to be dependent upon somebody's gifts or largesse to, to make it happen or, or to deny it. So that we're very much rooted in that. But also we've always always been very keen to understand that this is a generational project, right? It's not something that uh, uh, for me, I've always held, I'm kind of a long distance runner. My job is to pass the baton, you know, pick it up, not drop it, make sure it's not dropped. <laughs> And, and pass it on, you know, uh, but in the course of passing it on, working within the confines of a long-term strategy to say these things need to be built so that it's a little bit easier or it's a little bit clearer for those coming behind me to then pick up the pieces and do an another type of work, another layer of work, uh, but to make sure that, that they don't exist under the same exact social, political, economic conditions uh, that, that I did that because we've we've moved things and changed the needle uh, in accordance with the program that, that we've laid out based upon both kind of the long term, the midterm and the short term strategy that, that we've laid laid out. Um, in the in the what well, the piece to me I always find the most challenging is that short term. You know, growing up in this tradition in this particular uh, political vision that I grew up with. We've been great at the long term. It's like, what do we do in the next month? What do we do in the next, you know, week? Uh, that is where I think we've often found the greatest degree of challenges, and then making sure that, you know, how does this practice, how does this engagement, how does this set of resources and commitments and, and sacrifices, how is that really going to align up to make sure that we accomplish, you know? The, the 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 handoff at the the midterm point and what we've laid out and then how do we we ensure that that meets the long term and the thing that that uh you know i would say my time here uh in jackson is um learning how to be flexible learning how to um really take stock of your own the impact of your own work because you know like they say, you know, losing has consequences. Well, success also has consequences. Uh, and there, there, um, unfortunately, in our society, there, there are forces of real opposition. You know, here with our project, that you know, each success kind of breeds a, a reverse, a converse reaction. And so we're constantly having to kind of renegotiate. You know, even though we accomplish this, you know, is that going to be contained? Did we build enough relationships? Did we build enough, you know, uh, understanding the kind of carriers for beyond maybe the 10 or so folks who concentrated time and energy here? Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that our movements work, work best. I think we work best when we have a vision and we develop strategies, i.e. plans, you know, with, with clear goals, clear division of labor, when and where that's necessary. Um, and a clear understanding of what we are asking of each other to accomplish. Yeah, so I do think there are there are real choices and and real trade offs to consider. But I guess I don't want to make too much the idea that we have to have all of this thought through perfectly, or you know, to have the perfect plan. 
or that there's a single correct analysis, you know, that, that will tell us then what the single pathway is. Like what the line of the march is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I, I, I and, and I'm going to just, I think that's still part of the kind of colonized thinking that we have, you know, that if we just have that one right analysis, we're going to have, you know, the one right version, we can find the right alternative single replacement for this fictional unitary capitalism <laughs> that, that we've set up, you know, but, but I do think we make the road by walking. And so there's, there's a connection, a fundamental connection between what we do right now and what we think the future that we're trying to get to is. On the other hand, I think that in this moment, we have some real opportunities. So I was, I was going to mention a few things that, that I thought would be worth um, highlighting. You know, I, I do think, given everything that's going on in the world with the pandemic and now expressions of desires for racial justice, we have to stoke those sparks that people have or that where it's really burning to fan those flames of you know, these desires for a different world, right? Like, what is the world where black lives really are valued? What does that look like? You know, what's the post-pandemic world going to be if we're going to a new normal, right? One that we can all live in better ways together. So to me, that's not necessarily a plan for the long term, but it sets, you know, it sets something out there that, that hopefully people will find worth fighting for and working for even after perhaps some of the moment has passed. Speaking of the particular and the specific and the short term, <laughs> so these, these uprisings that have, you know, just a firestorm across the whole country. Curious how that's affecting and how you're all navigating what's going on with that, with the work that's already been in place. The piece around the, the Floyd Rebellion, um, you know, that's a very dynamic thing. Um, and I, I, for one, have been trying to argue that it's, it's something that's been building for years in terms of uh, just the, the mass frustration of not just Black people in this society, but damn near everybody in this society, you know. Um, and then you, just so many young folks who've been um, stationary in their houses for months now, just with a bunch of pent-up energy, anger, and frustration you know, on top of seeing like their parents or themselves, you know, uh, being unemployed overnight, you know, not knowing where relief is coming, if they're going to be houseless in the next couple of weeks and or months, which is a uh, ongoing threat that many face. What this, this moment points to, I think really is a rupture of the system that many of us have been analyzing, predicting and desiring. It's been a weird combination of all of those that I think that that point is here um, it, because I think just clearly it, as it's presently set up, the political actors in the system itself really just do not have the tools to address the situation in hand. Uh, and even when they try, the, the efforts just fall short. You know, look at some of the ways in which, you know, there's been a very, very clear demand around, you know, uh, defunding the police. And the liberal side of this kind of political equation has done everything this to, to say, well, that's defund the police does not mean defund the police. Well, actually it does. You know, uh, we need more police. We just need to do more training. And people are like, we've done, 
you know, 50 years of training and we still get the, the end result. So no, this is not about training. This is actually about their fundamental function and role in a society and is it needed, right? But they're incapable of either really asking that question or really looking down, you know, the kind of the road to say, if I don't resolve this, I'm going to lose a, a, a site of organic support. Because younger generations are like, I, I don't, I, there's alternatives that I can build. I don't, I'm not inherently dependent upon you or your way of organizing or doing anything. Like that's one of the clear things that's on display, I think in this moment. And it just points to that the system just at this juncture does not have fundamental answers. Uh, and that means there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. And this is where this question of strategy and tactics, I think is, uh, is, is paramount. You know, in, in the course of what's happened, you know, with COVID-19, the, the amount of mutual aid that just kind of spontaneously emerged all throughout the country uh, has no parallel except for the 1930s. Um, uh, and I think that that's a, 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 a deeply overlooked story. Uh, but I think it's significant for forces like us to, to, to note that uh, our message is resonating. So how do we, we reach and tie into folks and build the, the kind of connective blue on the networks, you know, that are going to be needed to sustain it and grow this as a fundamental basis, you know, for a new economy, a new society. You know, marching only takes us to a certain point, you know, uh, um, kind of confrontation through um, property destruction only takes us through, through a certain point. And this is, I think, one of those other pieces that says that not only could you stop, but you could also, if organized, build with all of that collective energy, skill, and capacity, not just temporarily, but permanently. And, and some of our thinking, I know from, from, my, from speaking for myself, uh, I'm really trying to interject in this a, a longer term question a, around um, some of the, the deeper crises, the, the ecological collapse, the ecological crisis, climate change, like that is, is a bigger shark that's coming you know, down the pipeline. And this really, I think, should be used as a testing ground to see how we are going to respond and what is the overall capacity. And on some measures, I think what's been proven in a short period of time is that where there's political will, we can solve some of these major problems. And, and I've been, you know, in the climate justice movement, I would argue all my life, just a particular uh, weird black nerdish consciousness that I've had. But but, but, but since Rio, been really following all these international deliberations going on since the early 90s. And the excuse has always been rendered. The economy is too complex. The system is too big. It's, you know, it's not manageable. We couldn't shut things down. We couldn't alter that. We saw in a span of two months, that was a complete lie. Mm-hmm. Right? The global economy basically kind of ground to a halt through political leadership and political mediation. So I think it demonstrated everybody in real time Problems can be addressed pretty quickly if we all come to some consensus that they need to be. And that is in part what, what we are just trying to play our, our part in shaping and pushing that consensus to say, you know, if the governments won't respond, we have the, the capability and the capacity organizing ourselves to exercise, you know, all of our different powers, all of our different agencies. The frame of that historically has been called the general strike. But I'm like, you can call it whatever you want. I really don't care. Mm-hmm. If if the end goal is to 
empower everybody to come up with a new system of governance, going back to one of the original points. That's what we're really trying to push for and articulate there. Um, you know, a lot of our theory and work, the underscore of the stuff that we develop as part of the Jackson Cush plan and, and the, the evolution of, of uh, cooperation Jackson was, was really based upon crisis response in truth uh, and really learning from uh, Hurricane Katrina and the devastation that, that, that occurred in this community and in similar communities, you know, throughout the Gulf uh, South. Uh, so a lot of our program, like the, the hard insistence around food sovereignty, you know, uh, and, and being very dogmatic about that in some regards on our end, you know, because uh, folks would, you know, we would tell others sometimes we're, we're focusing on this, even though we know it's not the most profitable endeavor for us to get into, but it has the most strategic importance. And for us, it was to make sure that we were not, again, in a food-dependent situation and that we have the capacity to overcome food being used as a weapon against poor Black people, which it has and which it was in some very stark and, and, and drastic terms after Hurricane Katrina. So that being like really ingrained in our minds, we're like, that, that's going to be a focus, even if it drives us bankrupt, <laughs> because it's a survival piece. You know, like we need that productive capacity for a moment like COVID-19, right? Our assumption, the assumption that led to the development of our strategy was that natural catastrophes and social catastrophes on the order of Hurricane Katrina were going to become more commonplace and that we needed to get prepared for, for different types of kind of social and systemic collapse, particularly like just government not, as was clearly demonstrated by Hurricane Katrina, not that they didn't have the capacity, they just didn't have the will, uh, you know, to really execute something in the service of, of black life. They just really didn't. That was on full display in Katrina. Um, and we were saying, you know, given what this entity of the United States government historically is, uh, we cannot nor should not expect it to come to our rescue when things get tough. And sure enough, COVID-19 has proven that assumption correct again. Um, unfortunately, it's not always good to be right. You don't want to be right about things of, of those nature. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, it's put us being kind of mentally prepared, allow us to develop a strategy which says, well, what are the pieces, what are the things that we need to, sacrifice put in place to make sure if something goes down, we'll at least have these fundamental basics kind of taken care of, or, or at least be in a position to, to ramp up production, ramp up capacity. And we are well suited for that. And a lot. <laughs> um, when I was growing up, my main exposure to quote-unquote solutions were nonprofit charities who were often staffed by people who were not from the community. We're talking about solutions to food insecurity, solutions to homelessness, solutions to whatever other social ill that is actually facilitated <laughs> by the government and capitalism. Maybe I can't say that. <laughs> 
Um, but the solutions to all these social ills always lied outside of the community that was being affected by them. And it wasn't until I was introduced to cooperatives that I understood that there could be a solution that comes from us. And that as we engage with nonprofits or whatever other potential charity models get people what they need to survive to the next day, we also need to be actively building infrastructure so that we're not reliant on folks that aren't invested in dismantling the systems that are why we have these ills in the first place. And that co-ops and land trusts and all of these other alternatives are not pipe dreams. They are actually solutions that have been present in the Black community, in, in Black history, in many different communities and cultures. These are not new. They're actually very familiar ways of being. And they are actual solutions that change us as they help us change our conditions. And this is something that I also got to experience firsthand being part of a cooperative. Yeah, and at the time, I knew nothing about them. I knew that opting into a cooperative would lower my term bill. <laughs> and that was honestly, that and the idea of community were the, the reasons why I joined. Being a part of my co-op was the first time during school that I had actually had access to food that was seasoned, <laughs> that tasted good, to, to food I could afford. And through the process of working with people, of organizing, of planning, and splitting the responsibilities for making sure that my co-op of 25 people had food to eat, it was also the first time that I was ever in control <laughs> or had that much agency over getting my needs met. If I did not order the right amount of food, that meant we weren't gonna have vegetables next week. If I did not set up the regular schedule for cleaning, it meant that our, well, it's not a great thing that our co-op would get shut down, but <laughs> um, at the root of it, like, that's what governance is. It's having control over your decisions and livelihood. And there's something that Kali says in this interview about um, every cook can govern. Being a part of that cooperative at school and later the housing cooperatives that I have lived in have really shaped my leadership. They've grown me as a person, as a facilitator, and they've also grown my understanding that something else, um, something better was possible because it wasn't just a theory. It wasn't just an idea anymore. I had actually gotten to experience it. And co-ops are not perfect. They're not the solution. They're part of a larger picture. But I really wanted to share this personal experience just to say that once we have our own infrastructure to meet our own basic needs, we don't have to rely as heavily on institutions that are not controlled by us and refuse to care about us. To paraphrase civil rights leader and organizer Fannie Lou Hamer, when you got 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup can for the winter, no one can push us around and tell us what to say or do. This sets us up to resist in a whole new way. Or as Movement Generation Planning Committee member Gopal Dayaneni would say, to become ungovernable, which just so happens to be a huge theme in our next episode. So please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss it. Peace out, y'all. Economics for Emancipation is a project of the Center for Economic Democracy. This podcast is hosted by me, 
Amethyst Carey, and produced and edited by Libby Cohn with support from Liren Ma. Our sound is mixed by Michael Garth. This podcast features music from Masterpiece, who you can find linked in our show notes. The guests in this series are board members or fellows at the Center for Economic Democracy. To learn more about our work, visit us at www.economicdemocracy.us. And to tune into conversation about this podcast, hop on Twitter or Instagram with the tag, hashtag E4EPod, and that is four like the number four.